I've had several conversations with members this week about control. Most of us know that trying to control everything in leadership is bound to backfire. And yet, a lot of us struggle to let some things go. In this episode, the starting point to release a bit of that control. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 625. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One area that many of us struggle with as leaders is control, sometimes controlling a bit too much, sometimes not wanting to let others take over, and of course, sometimes the anxiety that comes with control. I'm so glad today to welcome a guest expert that's going to help us look at control in a way that helps us to get beyond it a bit, maybe release a little bit of control that we otherwise may keep that's not helping us to lead well. It's not helping us to move our organizations forward. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Maura Ahrens Mealy. She is the host of The Anxious Achiever, a top 10 management podcast that helps people rethink the relationship between their mental health and their leadership. Mora founded Women Online and The Mission List, an award-winning digital consulting firm and influencer marketing company dedicated to social change in 2010, and sold her business in 2021. She helped Hillary Clinton log on to her first internet chat and has launched digital campaigns for President Obama, Malala Yousafzai, the United Nations, the CDC, and many other leading figures and organizations. She is the author of The Anxious Achiever, Turn Your Biggest Fears into Your Leadership Superpower. Maura, what a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thanks. I'm so happy to be here. I loved reading the book because of partially all of the examples you share of your work and your journey with anxiety and so many things we'll talk about a bit today. And you had mentioned to me previously that you you find yourself sometimes being a bit of a control freak. <laughs> Where has ah. control gotten in your way as a leader? Me? Control? <laughs> <laughs> You know, Dave, it's so bad that I have gotten to the point where I have learned to hide my anxious micromanaging because I know it drives people who work with me off the wall. And so I sort of will say all the right things to people while in my head I am freaking out and worrying about every little bit of outcome. Uh. And you know, it took me a long time to realize that this is not about other people. It's about me <laughs> and my anxiety. And that I was just acting out my anxiety on everyone I worked with. And honestly, when I go talk to people, the number one complaint I get is my manager just doesn't let me have any space. Mm. They, they drive me crazy. They micromanage me. They don't trust me. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. it's. I have heard that so many times from people too, and still do from our members and listeners. And I, I thought it was interesting that one of the things you mentioned in the book is that control is often caused by fear. Tell me about that. 
It's such a human response if you think about it, right? It's it's really our brain trying to protect us. We evolved as humans to stay alive, <laughs> you know, originally not to get eaten. And all of those systems in our brain still exist. And when we feel that things are uncertain and scary, i.e. we're not in control, all of those hormones kick in. We get anxious. We fear the future, right? And so we learn along the way coping mechanisms, right? And control is really a coping mechanism a lot of us have when we get super, super anxious because things feel very uncertain and possibly bad or scary. And there's so many things that like we know logically we can't control. And especially from a leadership standpoint, we know we shouldn't be trying to control. Like people should have autonomy. We should be coach like, like so many things we talk about right. on the show. We've read all the articles. Exactly. Like with me, with me and my internal micromanaging, I, I've read all the articles. I wrote right. a book and right. still. <laughs> And still, like it's a struggle for so many of us. And um, I was, I was interested. I pulled a quote from the book. You quote anxiety expert David Barlow, and I'm, I'm quoting you now, saying the difference between people with no more than moderate anxiety and people with severe anxiety is optimism. Barlow says the former group is able to believe that although anything could happen, most of the time things will be just fine, and even if something goes wrong, they'll be able to deal with it. That strikes me as a pretty big distinction in how we we think about and handle anxiety and control. Yes. And I don't want anyone out there who isn't an optimist to feel bad. In fact, I'm going to say that there's new research coming out that shows the strength of anxiety and what's called defensive pessimism, which a lot of us lovely anxious achievers, like we will assume the worst and prepare for the worst and feel like that preparation will protect us. I don't know if anyone out there can resonate with this feeling, but we're always, always assuming the worst and working so hard to make sure it doesn't happen. And we get in the habit of that. And that's called defensive pessimism. And there is new research showing that that can be adaptive. So all of this stuff is in flux. But what Barlow says about optimism is really, really telling to me, because what he's saying is, you need to have some anxiety, right? He calls it just enough anxiety because again, anxiety has kept us alive as a species. It makes sure that we protect ourselves and that we are prepared for the worst. And part of leadership is being prepared for the worst, right? Yeah. Being prepared for pivots, changes, global pandemics. But when we let anxiety overwhelm us, we freeze and we are not our best selves. And so the illusion of control, which is optimism, can be very, very helpful because you enter each day saying, I think the worst won't happen. I got it. But I'm prepared if it does. Yeah. And as you were saying that and describing like someone feeling like, okay, I'm kind of thinking about the worst case scenario. I was thinking, you know, that's kind of me. I I used to think (laughs) of myself as an optimist (laughs) early in my life. And I sort of realized like, I am in a way, but also like when I'm thinking about 
strategy and like business stuff. Maybe it's a whole bunch of years of working for Dale Carnegie and Carnegie's principle of like, imagine what's the worst thing that could happen to like try to control stress. And I find myself doing that a lot of like, okay, let's say this goes really badly. (laughs) What's like, what's the likely outcome? And then kind of work up from there. And there's a sense of that that's like really helpful and actually necessary from a leadership standpoint. Like you said, like it's actually our responsibility as leaders to go down that path and to think like, okay, if this doesn't go well, like what am I going to do? Like what are we going to do as an organization? What am I going to do with our team? And so what I'm part of what I'm hearing you say is that this is like a spectrum, right? There's like, mm-hmm. yes, that's all good and Having a sense of that optimism helps us to give a little bit more of that illusion of control, which is also really helpful. It's super helpful. You know, it's like it's like another layer of protection. But the, the truth is, and what you just referenced that Dale Carnegie prescribes also is is really, really cognitive behavioral therapy. 101. And Angela Neal Barnett, who's a, a psychologist who I, I feature in the book has an exercise, which is very similar to what you just said. And she calls it the so what chorus. And asking so what is a great trick. It's what you were just saying. I'm going to bomb the meeting tomorrow. So what? Mm. Well, my my team will think less of me. I'll be embarrassed. My boss will think less of me. So what? I'll feel ashamed. So what? And really playing that out until you come to an outcome of thinking, you know what? Even if the worst happened, even if my boss fired me for bombing the presentation tomorrow, which I know factually is very, very unlikely, I'd still be okay. Yeah. And that's a great tactic. Yeah, it is. There's something about it. And there's something about doing that that then also gets you in a place of, okay, I've accepted sort of this worst possible scenario, which like I know logically is probably not going to happen anyway, but let's say it does. And then like there's something about getting to that place that then like, okay, what can I do to make it a little better? <laughs> like even if I'm going into a situation that I know is probably not going to go amazing, what can I do to like improve it a little bit? And there's something about having released that first that just like gets you back in a place of like, okay, how can we like improve a bit? Well, right. And then you're back in the the learning mindset, right? You're being flexible. Yeah. And I mean, that is the magic is when you can listen to your anxiety and talk to it because that's what you're really doing, right? You're just talking to it. You're building distance from it. You can even laugh at it a little bit. Like, really, Maura, you're really going to get fired because you <laughs> flub a slide on the presentation? Really? Right? Like, just kind of, I like to lighten it up a little bit when my anxiety kicks in at work. And it's 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 just a wonderful way to then get to a place where you're like, okay, let's try this and just be more flexible. There's a whole chapter in the book on control and mm-hmm. releasing a little bit of control. And one of the things you invite us to do is to adopt a practice mindset. And a part of that's just trying some things on. What does that look like and sound like? It's hard. It looks like what I just said, honestly, being a little bit more flexible, not having to know all the answers, not having to dive in and fix things, maybe not having such a strong emotional investment in every outcome. It looks like, I like to say, being a sort of a C plus student, right? Like, 
what if you could show up one day and sort of be mediocre and see what other people can do, see what your team could do? What would change? It's posing little experiments to yourself. And again, those of us who seek control can become very, very rigid, right? Mm. Often we are perfectionistic. Often it's my way or the highway. Often it's if I don't edit this document 36 times, there's no way it can be right. And all that rigid behavior doesn't really do us any favors in our leadership. When our academy members start in our cohorts, we talk about We don't use the term practice mindset, but it's essentially what you just described of like trying something on, taking Mm -hmm. on a new identity, starting with something small, five minutes a day. And it is really, really hard Mm -hmm. for a lot of us, me included, because I look at other people when they're going through it and it seems like really easy when it's someone else. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Like, like, oh, five minutes. It should be easy just to try something out. And then I try it myself and I'm like, oh, this is really hard. <laughs> and it feels like a big obstacle to just start with that, to like move into an uncomfortable space, to try something on, to be a C plus student. Because most of us who are in our listening audience, like, got to where we are because we were like the A students and maybe we got an A minus or a B plus once in a while, right? And have you found something either for yourself or the people you're working with as you support them that helps to just get started on that a bit and just move into that uncomfortable space even while it's feeling uncomfortable? I think that you have to sort of isolate one of your most controlling habits and see if you can interrupt it for just a short period of time. So maybe you're someone who is really, really present on email and Slack, right? You're you're, you're super responsive. Ask yourself, what is this really about my need to feel in control? What would happen if I didn't respond or didn't check in with email for three hours? Mm. That's a really good one because I swear, how many of us pour so much of our professional identity into our smartphone? <laughs> it's like, blows me away. And the yeah. simple act of untethering from the smartphone really can can be a great practice method, but also raise up some questions about how much of this is about my need to both feel in control for myself and make sure other people are doing what I want them to do so that I feel better. Yeah, indeed. And I'm thinking about Gustavo Rossetti, who was on the show a few months ago, and we talked about just this transition we've all had to the hybrid workplace. And Mm -hmm. he made the point that a lot of times now leaders are feeling powerless because we're used to being able to see people and have regular interactions. And now we're not feeling that sense of control that we had. And Mm -mm. part of the invitation you make is like, get, you know, the extent that we can get clear on scheduling, deadlines, career goals, that's really helpful, isn't it? Absolutely. And I started thinking about this when I interviewed MIT professor and longtime businessman Bob Posen on my podcast. And he he talks about success metrics, right? And, And that in a world where people are remote, because anxiety loves a vacuum, right? That that people have to be much more aligned on what metrics define success because we can't be checking in all the time and seeing each other. Although I think Slack and and those kinds of and teams and those kinds of platforms are meant to be a replacement for that, but the jury's out in my opinion. And so I like to say that you can reduce a lot of anxiety just through clarity. (laughs) 
because anxiety loves that vacuum when things are unclear, right? I get anxious, especially if I tend to be a more anxious, controlling boss, right? I get anxious. I can't see people. I don't know what they're doing. Are we going to make our deadline? Are we not? And so what can be really helpful is if we're much more explicit on just the nitty gritty of what we're doing and 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 our milestones and when we're going to see stuff, you know, I, I think even things, I, I had a client recently and it was so enlightening to me because they asked everyone when they wanted to see documents before a big strategy meeting, right? So huh. do you need time to reflect on a document or are you okay if it's sprung upon you in a meeting? I thought that was amazing. <laughs> Especially if you're someone who gets a little bit nervous and socially anxious in meetings, right? Or maybe you're new at a job or you're a new leader and you're really trying to prove yourself. How helpful is it to say, gosh, if if I could have that document a day in advance, or if I could share my thoughts after the meeting, all that anxiety goes away. Yeah. And it, like so much of this is just a reminder to me to come back of some of the core management practices we all know we should be doing, which is <laughs> yes. delegating well. But but along with that, having conversation about like, what are the check-ins we should have? Like, what do you need to see in advance? How often should we talk? Like those kinds of things that a lot of, like we all sort of know we should do. But in practice, I find very few leaders that actually sit down and have those conversations with stakeholders or with employees, like as the work is starting, whatever the work is or the project. But creating a bit of that, and like I'm, I'm sort of leaning in on your invitation here to like just make some small shifts, like doing a little bit of that. Like I love that question, like how soon do you need documents? When do you need the slides? How often should we meet? Like one or two of those questions early on, kind of that can really help everyone to like you have that sense a little bit more of control and you don't end up jumping in as much to control things you probably shouldn't be anyway. Exactly. You don't feel the need to check in, which a lot of us do. And and I I mean, listen, I have a lot of empathy for managers right now because I think that all the data show this and you talk to anyone, especially in HR these days, and they'll say managers' jobs have changed tremendously over the pandemic. They are being asked to do way more work. And also hybrid work is harder to manage. It just is. And it requires more conversation. And that is a time suck, right? And it's hard and we're tired and we don't want to sit and talk to someone about this stuff. We'd much rather have an hour to ourselves and go through email or whatever. And so I think we also have to acknowledge that this stuff is hard and it takes work and it takes intention. Speaking of acknowledging, there's a heading in the book that says, try noting and naming. Mm -hmm. And you write, pausing brings some emotional freedom. Instead of overly identifying with the difficult emotion, I am afraid, we can recognize that we're having the emotion. I'm experiencing fear right now. There's a real distinction in that wording. What's what's significant about that distinction? It separates the discomfort from your identity. And you see this a lot. And I I really like you. I pay very close attention to language. And there's a movement certainly in in disability rights and in, in DEI that, you know, you can have something or experience something without being it, right? And I think that being able to just distance yourself a little bit 
gives you some space. It gives you also a beat to consider how I might react. Because the thing is, a lot of us, if we say, I'm so, I'm, I'm so anxious about this right now. I better call, I better call Dave right now because, oh my God, and I'm going to call him and I'm going to send him an email and just make sure he's got this memo. If we just take a beat there, <laughs> right? Yeah. And note and maybe name it, we have another minute to think, hmm, like, does, does Dave need a call from me? Is is that a good thing for me to do right now? And we're not reacting so mindlessly. Susan David was on the show a while back, and she had this great quote that emotions are data, not directions. And mm-hmm. I've thought about that over the years and thought that is so similar to what you're saying here is that we're going to have these emotions. Of course we are, right? But if we can look at them like, okay, I'm a person having this emotion versus I am this emotion. Exactly. It's it's so different then of like the agency we have to then like, okay, I can notice this, I can see it, and I can set this aside and decide to surrender on this a bit so that I do a better job of actually leading and serving people. Absolutely. And and the thing is, the, the cool thing, especially when it comes to anxiety, is there are times when you might say, I'm so anxious about this presentation. I can't keep my fingers still. I'm jumpy. I have so much energy. Oh my gosh. And you might say, you know what? This really matters. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to work all night. Like You can use whatever emotion, but it should be mindful, not mindless. Right. And that's where the noticing and distancing can help. Yeah. It's a choice, right? It's a, yeah. And it's not, look, it's not always. When we are flooded with anxiety, when we are flooded with any emotion, we often lose the sort of working executive function to make that choice. And that's why everything you hear about breathing, it's easy to be skeptical, but it really does help to get to that place where you could physically make a choice. But, but I think if you're feeling, before something big, a lot of anxiety, it's okay to say to Susan's point, oh, this is really, this is interesting. Why am I feeling so much anxiety? Do I do I want to just use this anxiety? Because as Wendy Suzuki from NYU says, right, she calls it activation energy, which is that feeling of anxiety that we get maybe before we go on stage or before we have a big meeting, like that's good anxiety. Or do I need to just take a beat and look at it? Yeah. And us talking about choice like reminds me too, like there's good anxiety and then there's anxiety that's not helpful and that we don't have choice over. And many people struggle with that. And if that is you listening, like, boy, please do. I mean, one of the messages you make in the book is like, find the support systems, the people, the professionals, therapists that can really help and support you, of course. And I've been, my eyes have been opened up in recent years, like how many people do struggle with anxiety that's debilitating. And so like when you're in that place, like that's the place to get support from others, right? A hundred percent. I really thank you for bringing that up. I mean, anxiety, like like all of mental health, like many things, as you said, exists on a spectrum. And when you are on the side of the spectrum where your anxiety is debilitating, and I have been there, oh my goodness, when you are having a panic attack that makes you think you're dying, or when you can't leave your bed, or you know, it's really affecting your life, then you need to get help. It's an illness, right? Many of us are in that sort of middle of the spectrum where anxiety is definitely 
a thing. (laughs) We travel with it. We may be anxious by nature. It may be a very anxious time. And we're definitely noticing our anxiety and it's impacting us, but it's not debilitating. And then sometimes there's that good anxiety and sometimes there's no anxiety. But all of us at some point in our life are going to experience anxiety and negative anxiety. It's just a natural human thing. Yeah. And it's like like so much of this, it's, you know, we're moving a little bit. We're shifting a little bit to have a little bit more choice, to have a little bit more like, okay, I'm having these emotions and I, I can sit with that and I can see it and then I can do something productive with it. And one of the other things that I really found helpful in the 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 chapter, especially on control, is the invitation to set boundaries. And again, it's one of those things like we all know we need to have a, a framework for that, and yet a lot of times we don't do it. And I love the point that you quote from Roxanne Gay, and I'm quoting you again. I would tell someone, think about what would make you comfortable in a situation and what would make you uncomfortable, she says. And that's where your boundary is. That moment where you go from comfort to discomfort. It doesn't have to be anything more than discomfort. Your initial boundaries are, I don't care for that. And I read Mm -hmm. that, and you commented this in the book too, is like, it's just a really simple way to think about boundaries. Like what's making me uncomfortable, right? A hundred percent. I love, I love Roxane Gay and her work, but, but let's go back to that document example. Yeah, sure. So, and this is a thing for me, so maybe it's why I'm I'm bringing it up. But you may have a boundary crossed and spend an entire day feeling a little bit uncomfortable and distracted if you're waiting for a big meeting and you haven't read the material, right? A boundary has been crossed for you. Now, if you knew that maybe if you had a day with the material, you'd be more comfortable, then you could ask for it. And and that's the limit, right? And so boundaries are very personal. What's a boundary crosser for me is not maybe going to be a boundary crosser for you, Dave, right? right? I'm fine with people having access to me, calling me, emailing, texting me any hour of the day. That's that's not an issue for me. I'm easy, It's easy for me to jump between work and home. For a lot of people, that's a huge boundary crosser. I would say that's up there in the top three work boundary crossers. And so it's really important to think about what what's making me feel like my boundaries aren't being respected. Yeah. And that's a big one for me too. I try never to do that if I can avoid it. And for me, it feels really uncomfortable, like when I am handling something work-wise during personal time and vice versa. And but that it just illustrates your point, like how personal this is, right? Of thinking through like, where do I feel compromised? And that's where the language here you talk about in the book is part of identifying boundaries is when do I feel compromised or when's my work performance compromised is some of the language you use. And then what needs safeguarding? Mm -hmm. What does that sound like? Like if we play that out and thinking about what a boundary may look like and sound like. Well, let's use your example that you you really feel, I'm going to put words in your mouth, maybe that home and family time is home and family time. It's not work time. Right. So what needs safeguarding is your home and family time. Yeah. And what's going to make you perform your best is having maybe a more clear delineation between work time 
and home time. And this is huge right now for so many people because the pandemic basically changed all the rules. It changed all the rules for us knowledge workers, right? Because work was home and we were always on and we were always with our family. And so now is a really good time to think about what did I learn during the pandemic and and what is a boundary crosser for me and, and what am I maybe okay with? Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was thinking like, what is it that I struggle with on it? And I think for me, it's not even so much a values thing because I don't often pick up the phone and things like that, like when with, with her kids, but I'm just not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the part Great, that's really, fine. You know that about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like I, Bonnie would tell you, my wife, like I do not multi, I'm a single track. Like when I'm with something, I am with that and I'm a hundred percent, which is good and bad. I mean, it's also a strength in some ways, but boy, I really have a hard time context switching. It's just not. And so I've learned about myself, like, okay, I'm going to be one place or I'm going to be the other. And I'm going to try to do that well. But yeah, when things inevitably come up that interrupt that super hard for me, don't handle it well. Oh my goodness. But how amazing would it be? I actually just got this listener question who said, my my manager is so chaotic. I don't ever feel like they're there for me. They're so distracted, right? For 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 if if you, you to say if you to your imaginary team, you know what? I am not great at multitasking. So here's how I like to work. And and here's what I would recommend for us to have the best outcomes and the best working relationships together. Mm. I mean, I'm a great multitasker. Again, not a boundary for me. <laughs> yeah. So so the more we feel ideally like we could talk about this in a in a performance context, frankly, the better we all do and the less we act out on each other. Yeah, indeed. Well, and and that comes to the limit, which is one of the words you said earlier, that what's the actual behavior that helps and like one of the ones for me is i just don't give my cell phone to people i don't give it to clients mm-hmm. hardly ever and that actually helps me to then just have i give email address there's so many ways people can contact me but the but texting and cell phones just one of those things i'm like nope that's my limit and that actually works really well because then like the email box can get filled up and when i get to it great you know i'm really good on being responsive but but that's just been a helpful limit that's emerged for me that like fits beautifully in this framework That's perfect. That's a perfect example. Yeah, cool. This is so helpful. I mean, for me thinking about this and thinking about times that I have dealt with anxiety a bit and dealt with control, like there's so much here and there's tons more in the book. And I know there are a subset of people listening to this conversation who are thinking anxiety. That is something I struggle with a bunch. And I'm really looking for some ways to move forward and move through that a bit. And I would invite for those of you that are thinking that this book is a really helpful place to start. There's so much, I mean, there's, you talk about perfectionism in the book and control and feedback and so many other things that come up when we think about anxiety. So I'd invite folks to really grab the book for more. Uh, I'll put all the, the the links and notes, of course, in the weekly guide this week. And of course, your podcast. What a great place for, for <laughs> someone who's, who's, who's there to like really have some steps forward. So thank you so much for bringing this work to us. Oh, Dave, thank you so much. So I have one final question for you. Mm. I, I think that it's always helpful for us all to know like the experts are learning too. We're always learning and growing. Uh, as you've written this book, as you've been doing work, supporting people o- over the last few years, what's something in the not too distant past that you've changed your mind on? I have changed my mind on work travel. I used to be 
very, 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 very anxious, almost panic driven when I would get on planes. And I always told myself that work travel was something I had to endure. And it was so I could have a flexible schedule when I was at home to spend more time with my kids, yada, yada, yada. And then when the pandemic happened, and I just literally, like all of us, was grounded, about a year in, I realized, you know what? Not only do I like work travel, it's it's a value for me. I love going around and meeting new people and getting information and getting out there. That's an important thing for me huh. and my growth. And it just changed my framework. And as a result, I'm less anxious when I get on planes. Wow. What, yeah. an, what, a, what an interesting realization of not, not traveling and then seeing how much it brought joy and life to your work. Yeah. My husband's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> like most marriages, right? <laughs> exactly. Maura Aaron's Mealy is the author of The Anxious Achiever, Turn Your Biggest Fears into Your Leadership Superpower. Maura, thank you so much for your work. Oh, thanks, Dave. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. Susan David has this wonderful quote that your emotions are data, not directions, a reminder for us to move past just what we're feeling and be thinking about what do we actually move on. She talks about that in episode 297, Four Steps to Get Unstuck and Embrace Change, a wonderful perspective on thinking about how we can set aside sometimes the emotions, which may or may not be the directions for where we want to head. A very useful way to be thinking about framing emotions, especially in leadership. And two additional episodes I'd recommend that are helpful antidotes to jumping in with too much control. One of those antidotes is setting milestones effectively for yourself and others. Another one is intentional scheduling. Two episodes I'd recommend for that. The first one's episode 413, Effective Delegation of Authority. Hassan Osman was my guest on that episode. We talked about the critical steps involved in delegation. One of them is setting effective milestones, getting clear both with the people you have delegated to and yourself. What do milestones look like? That helps you to release a bit of the control when you need to. And also, episode 431, aligning your calendar to what matters. Nir Eyal was my guest on that episode, and we talked about the importance of time blocking. I've been doing that for years in my calendar. Many of our members and listeners do this as well. It's a very helpful way to approach a day, a week, a month intentionally to make sure you're controlling the things you actually do need to control and being able to set aside the things that aren't as helpful to control. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes that I've aired since 2011, searchable by topic, and also access to the weekly leadership guide. Each week, I am sending out one email with an overview of what we've talked about in the most recent episode, uh, a couple of additional thoughts for me, the links we mentioned, and then also a bunch of other resources articles that I've been finding for you, other podcasts, videos, things that I think will be supportive to you in your leadership development. Watch for that each week once you become a member at coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. And if you're looking for a bit more, Coaching for Leaders Plus might be helpful to you. One of the things I'm doing every month is writing a long-form article that's integrating 
the perspective and wisdom from many of the experts that have appeared on the podcast over the years, putting them together for you and answering a very specific question. Practically, how do you move forward by being able to integrate so much of what we do on the podcast each week? If that is of interest to you, it's one of the many benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus. For details, go over to coachingforleaders.plus to get there and you'll be able to find all the details. And I'll look forward to seeing you back on the, on the next episode on Monday and seeing you online on the website in the meantime. Have a great week. Take care.